Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 320 of Forgotten Classics, where we are going to start a new book, Oh, Murderer Mine, by Norbert Davis. This is a Doan and Carstairs novel. And everybody who has heard these before is going to be very happy. I know I was. These are noir-style, hard-boiled murder mysteries that are hilarious without really being slapstick. They're actually a real mystery. So if you have not heard them, you're in for a treat. And if you have, I've finally gotten back to it. I can't believe it was two or three years ago that I did the last one. I did not mean that much time to go by. First, though, let me give you the podcast highlight. Anybody who's been coming by here for a while knows I'm a big fan of Heather Ordover and Craftlit, craftlit craftlit.com, and you can find it on iTunes. She's been doing The Count of Monte Cristo. I have to say, I read The Count of Monte Cristo once. I was listening to it, even with Heather, and Heather's amazing. I didn't really want to read it again, I discovered. But if you do her premium feed, which is $5 a month, it's a subscription, she does all kinds of other books. And the one she's been doing most recently is The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I love this book. I've always loved this book. I don't know. There's something in me that just loves a good alien invasion story. And this was the very first H.G. Wells, terrific writer, really understood how to get under your skin while he was telling a great story. And Heather's commentary really makes you appreciate it even more. She's really wonderful in terms of not only telling you about the author and the times, but she links it to other things and broadens your horizon, really makes you consider the story from a different point of view. So she kind of brings it to life, you know. Anyway, if you want just the plain reading of The War of the Worlds, it's on LibriVox. It's the reading number two. I think it's the only solo reading. And it's a good reading. But what Heather will do, I didn't mention this for anybody who doesn't know her. I just assume everyone does. She gives a little commentary. She doesn't spoil it. And then you get to hear the audio of the story, and she'll come in at the end and make some other comments that kind of pull it all together for you. So that's what I've been listening to, and I highly recommend it. Now, Don and Carstairs. I think I kind of already said everything I need to say. It's hilarious. It's really a mystery. Norbert Davis didn't write enough of these died too young. He committed suicide. It's really sad, but he left us some of these great stories. And luckily for us, they weren't in copyright because nobody appreciated them until recently. So let's dive in. Oh, Murderer Mine by Norbert Davis. Chapter One. Here it was spring again, and the bees were buzzing, and the buds were bursting, and the doves were cooing, and the sun was beaming on all these and lots of other activities in a benignly obscene way. 
It was just the same old tedious show that has been playing return engagements at regular intervals for a million years or more, and certainly nothing to get worked up over. But nevertheless, it seemed new and splendid and fine to Melissa Gregory because she was happy. She was a simple and uncomplicated sort of person, and it didn't take much to put her in that state. She walked along the edge of the old quad now, with her head up and her shoulders back and her heels tapping in what she considered a briskly competent manner. She was slim and tall enough, and she had brown hair with copper-gold glints in it. Her blue eyes tipped a little at the outer corners, and her nose had three freckles on its bridge and turned up at the end. She was wearing the wrong shade of lipstick. She was being happy at this particular moment because she had been promoted to a better job as the result of her outstanding merit and her faithful record of attendance at faculty tea parties. She was now an instructor. In the odd hierarchy of college faculties, an instructor rates somewhere between the head gardener and the lowest professor, if anyone can determine which one he is. An instructor is not allowed to lecture, or for that matter to talk loudly anywhere, but is entrusted with conveying the more elementary truths in certain subjects to beginning students. Melissa taught anthropology, and she did this at an institution of higher learning called Breckenbridge University Western Division, which specialized in the mass production of graduates of a standard size and competence. It was an efficient and impersonal sort of a place, but unfortunately one of its founders had once been on the campus of a well-known Eastern college and hadn't forgotten it. Consequently, the campus of Breckenbridge had as much functional design as a bunch of dice dumped out of a hat. The buildings were scattered in all directions and hidden under ivy and behind bushes. Melissa's headquarters was a building known as Old Chem, because there were three beginning chemistry laboratories on the first floor. Old Chem was a solid, two-story, gray granite building with an ugly front and a splayed-out rear, and its architect had evidently had the theory that windows were designed to shoot Indians out of, and not to facilitate the entrance of fresh air or light. Melissa went up the block stone steps and through the arched entrance and then up the stairs to her right into the dimness of the upper corridor. Her office was the second one down, and she was fumbling in her purse for the key when she noticed that the door was slightly ajar. She pushed it open wider and looked in. This was a fairly representative example of a college faculty office. It was quite a lot larger than a hall closet and ventilated about as well, and the furniture probably would have brought a comparatively good price at a fire sale. Melissa loved it in a proud and fiercely possessive way because it was the first one she had ever had that was hers and hers alone. At present, there was a man in it. He was sitting in Melissa's chair. He had papers spread messily all over Melissa's desk. And in addition to all that, he was a young man. Which was something to give Melissa pause because when she thought about men which was neither too often nor yet too infrequently, she thought about young men. As a matter of fact, when she was doing thinking of this sort and enjoying it most of all, she thought about a young man who looked almost exactly like this one. 
Unfortunately, however, this was neither the time nor place for Melissa's dream man come to life to suddenly appear. Obviously, she couldn't go swooning at him even if she wanted to, and she told herself sternly that she had no such desire, because he was an intruder. Worse than that, he had all the earmarks of being one of the vilest criminals the university faculty produced, an office snitcher. And here he was caught red-handed in an attempt to move into Melissa's quarters even before she'd had an opportunity to get settled herself. Well, said Melissa in a cutting way, good morning. Uh, said the young man. He was making some very involved mathematical computations on a scratch pad and he didn't look up. Uh, he said, and pulled a large, indistinct map toward him and made a careful, wavy line on it with India ink and a drawing pen. He was extremely handsome. He had blonde hair that curled in ringlets and a straight, short nose. His eyes were blue, shaded with long, dark lashes. The effect of this color-add perfection was tainted a little by the way his mouth twisted down at one corner and the way he was scowling. But even at that, he missed being pretty only by a very small margin. Melissa stepped through the door. I beg your pardon. He looked up sideways at her. What do you want? Well, really, said Melissa, it so happens that this is my office. Not any longer. What? said Melissa blankly. It's mine now. What? said Melissa. The young man scowled. Are you hard of hearing, or don't you understand English? I'm going to use this office from now on, exclusively. Melissa swallowed hard. Well, you can't just move in like this. I already have. Well, who gave you the authority to do it? The president of the university. Oh, said Melissa. The young man eyed her coldly. Was there anything else? Melissa's voice was shaky. But, but all my files and notes are in here. Not now they aren't, said the young man. He pulled one of the desk drawers open to illustrate that it was empty. My files, Melissa shrilled. My class notes. What have you done? Nothing. The young man said shortly, I didn't touch them. Some dusty, beefy party who makes noises like a tin mouse took them away. Do you mean Professor Slay Meinick? The young man shrugged. He had custom-built shoulders. Melissa took a deep breath. Now look here, this is all wrong, and I don't care what the president of the university said. This office is mine. It was assigned to me. You haven't any right to just walk in and take it. What's your subject? The young man asked indifferently. Anthropology. Uh-huh. Oh, that's silly stuff. You don't need any particular office for that. Go find one somewhere else. Melissa swallowed again. What is your subject? Meteorology. Huh said Melissa contemptuously. And just why do you need this particular office for that? The young man jerked his thumb toward the ceiling. It has a trap door. My instruments are on the roof. What instruments? Melissa asked. I thought you people used crystal balls to predict the weather. 
The young man didn't answer. He just curled his lip. He reached down and rattled the weather map. He was waiting very pointedly for Melissa to leave. Melissa changed her tactics. Now listen, she said, smiling. I really want this office, this particular one. I like it, and I was here first. Let's make a deal. Let's not. Melissa lost her smile. Well, damn you anyway, you supercilious imitation of a Greek statue. This office is the only one in the building that has a private lady's powder room. Do you think I'm going to come here and knock on the door and ask your permission every time I... Well, every time? I know you're not. I have to make progressive calculations, and it's important that I'm not interrupted in the middle of them when I'm plotting a front. You'll have to make some other arrangements. Melissa breathed hard through her nose, staring at him. He stared back. I've seen you somewhere before, Melissa stated accusingly. To her amazement, he cringed. There was no other word for it. Melissa watched him narrowly, sensing her advantage, but not knowing what it was. Yes, she said, feeling her way. I know I've seen you somewhere before. Your face is very familiar. He was blushing very painfully. The flush crawled in red waves up from his collar. What's your name? Melissa demanded. He moistened his lips. Eric Trent. It didn't mean a thing to Melissa. She was baffled. Eric Trent knew it, and he sighed lengthily. If you don't mind, I'd like to get on with my work. Good day. Melissa scrambled around frantically in her mind, looking for an inspiration. She didn't find one. Oh, all right. She shot her hand out suddenly, forefinger pointed rigidly. But I'll remember where I've seen you, and then... You'll find out. She stepped back into the hall and slammed the door violently. Then she marched down the stairs and back along the lower hall to the office door opposite the largest of the chemistry labs. She hammered on the dark, scarred panels vigorously. There was no answer. Impatiently, Melissa tried the latch. It clicked, and she pushed the door open and looked in the office. It was larger and considerably more cluttered than hers, and dust motes stirred and glinted uneasily in the sunbeams that pried their way through the narrow windows. There was no one in sight. Melissa shut the door, and then she had a sudden hunch and opened it again very quickly. She caught Professor Slay Meinick in the act of crawling cautiously out from under his desk. He froze there on his hands and knees and made wordless little pip-pipping noises. Also, he seemed to be stuck, for he was by no means a small man, and the space he was in looked to be about three sizes too small. He was fat, as a matter of fact, fish-white and jelly-fat, but despite his size, the fierce jet-black mustache he was wearing was still too big for him, and Melissa got the impression the mustache was leading him around willy-nilly. He was bald and wore tiny rimless spectacles so thick they were opaque. Good morning, Professor, Melissa said. Oh, said Professor Slaymeinick. Yes, yes, it is. Good, I mean, isn't it? It was strange hearing such a pipsqueak voice emerge from such a roly-poly body. 
by dint of great exertion, the professor extricated himself from the trap he was in. "'What were you doing under your desk?' Melissa asked. "'Desk?' Professor Slaymeinick repeated blankly. He spoke with an accent that gave his words a just noticeable blubber. "'Under it all my fountain pen. I mean it dropped and rolled, I guess, didn't it?' "'No,' said Melissa. "'It didn't. You were hiding.' "'I?' said Professor Slaymeinick, amazed. "'Yes, you. From... from what?' Me. Why? Because you are the senior professor in this building, and you are in charge of assigning offices in it. Oh, dear, said Professor Slaymeinick. Just what, said Melissa, do you mean by giving my office to that matinee-faced moron upstairs? Oh, he's not a moron. He's a meteorologist. It's the science of the weather, storms and the climate and... and things. It's very important work, he said. Never mind what he said. Answer my question. Why did you give him my office? Oh, that, said Professor Slaymeinick. The president, T. Ballard Bestwick. He's the president of the whole university. He talks to rich people face to face, and they often give him some of their money. That's very vital. He wrote me a letter, to me, personally. It said that the moron, I mean, the meteorologist, was to have an office in this building. I'll find it. The letter. It's right here, isn't it? He burrowed busily among the papers on his desk. I don't care about the letter, Melissa told him. Why did you have to give this seasonal swami my office? He said he wanted it. Oh, he did, and that was reason enough? Yes, Professor Slaymeinick admitted. I mean, he's a very handsome young man, but I'm afraid he's not very nice. He snarls, doesn't he? Yes, said Melissa, sighing. All right, Professor. Have you given any thought to finding another office for me? Indeed, yes, said Slaymeinick. Number five, all your files and notes are in there. I was very careful of them. You'll like number five. It's nice, isn't it? It most certainly is not. It stinks. Melissa was speaking the literal truth. Number five occupied an unused corner of one of the chemical labs, and its partitions were porous. It is a moot question whether students like to make stinks because they take chemistry, or whether they take chemistry because they like to make stinks. In any event, they invariably do. It's not right, said Melissa. The whole thing is nothing but an injustice. You know that, don't you? Oh, dear, said Professor Slaymeinick. And do you know what I'm going to do one of these fine days? What? Professor Slaymeinick asked. I'm going to spit right in one of his beautiful eyes. Oh, said Professor Slaymeinick, deeply shocked. Melissa slammed his door and started down the hall in the general direction of number five. She had gone about ten paces when something stirred sluggishly in the shadows. Melissa stopped with a startled gasp.
It was too early yet for students to be lurking about, and anyway, this couldn't possibly be mistaken for one. It was a dog. It was the most enormous dog Melissa had ever seen. It sat right down in the hall in front of her in a leisurely and self-possessed way and proceeded to look her over from head to foot in a manner that was not far from insulting. Melissa caught her breath. Uh, Hello, she said timidly. She snapped her fingers in a feeble attempt at friendliness. The dog studied her fingers as though he had never seen any before and wouldn't care if he never did again. He was a fawn-colored Great Dane. Hello, said a voice. Melissa jerked around. There was a man leaning against the wall watching her. He hadn't been there two seconds before. He was small and plump and pleasant-looking. He was wearing a double-breasted pinstriped blue suit with outsized lapels and a dark blue hat. He had a naively appealing smile and a smooth, roundly pink face. He moved his head to indicate the dog and said, I use him for a decoy. While people gape at him, I sneak up behind them and pinch them. Pinch them? Melissa repeated, shying away. A slang expression, the man explained. I mean, I arrest them. I'm a detective. What are you? An anthropologist. Ah, said the man. You study apes and like that. No, certainly not. Anthropology is the study of mankind. We study apes only because you can learn a lot about men from them. I'll bet that's the truth, said the man. My name is Doan. What's your name? Melissa Gregory. Hello, said Doan. That's Carstairs in front of you. He works with me. That is, when he's not working against me or just not working. He looks like a very good dog. That's what he looks like, Don agreed. I've got a word of warning for you. Oh, what? Melissa asked, staring at him. A word to the wise. Lay off the bird in your office. He's not for sale or for rent. What? said Melissa. Eric Trent, Don explained. Mustn't touch. What? said Melissa. Don sighed. You must not make passes at Eric Trent. That is verboten. Melissa's eyes narrowed. I don't believe I like the idea you're selling. Suppose you elaborate on it. It's simple, Don told her. I keep females from making love to Eric Trent. Well, why? Because I've been hired to do it, and believe me, it's a full-time job. Women fall for him in squads. I mean, they would fall, over backwards, if I didn't stop them. I understand the words you're saying, Melissa said, but they don't seem to make any sense. Are you seriously telling me that this, this person has a bodyguard to keep women from falling in love with him? That's right, Don agreed, and I'm it. Melissa shook her head groggily. Well, why? I mean, I'll agree just for the sake of argument that there might be one or two women in the world hard up enough or dumb enough to want that insolent imbecile, but they're the type who would deserve him if they got him. Why should either he or you worry about them? We're not, said Doan, but his wife is. Oh, he's married? And how? 
said Melissa. Now wait a minute. I'm just catching up with you. You have the bare-faced insolence to warn me. I think I'll slap your face. Don't, Don warned. Carstairs will bite you if you do. Not that he cares anything about me, but he would feel it was a reflection on him. Melissa looked at Carstairs. He was lying down on the floor with his eyes shut. Don't let him fool you, said Doan. He's ready to go into instant action. He's just pretending he's not interested. Hmm, said Melissa. You know, this is all sort of fascinating in a repugnant way, and I know I've seen this tramp party before, but I can't remember where. Have you any idea where I could have seen him? Yes, said Doan. Well, where? His wife is Heloise of Hollywood. Heloise, Melissa repeated. Of Hollywood. Oh! Oh, Don agreed. Now wait, said Melissa. Now wait a minute. I know. He's handsome lover boy. Yep, said Don. Stay right here, Melissa ordered. I'll be right back. She ran down the hall and through the malodorous gloom of the chem lab. The door of number five was open, and her notes were arranged in well-ordered confusion all over the floor and at the sway-backed desk. Melissa dug through them, spewing lecture fragments in all directions, until she found the current issue of a large and slick and all-too-popular woman's magazine. She trotted back to the hall, thumbing eagerly through the back pages of the magazine. "'Wait now!' she said. I know I saw one here. It was a full-page ad. In the upper left-hand corner, there was a portrait photograph of a very handsome young man in a naval officer's dress whites. The very handsome young man was Eric Trent. Under it, there was a message in artistically slanted and swirly facsimile handwriting. "'And I can hardly bear the thought of the endless weary days that must somehow pass "'before I can find safe haven once more in the dear circle of your strong arms. "'But I too know my duty, dear one, and I shall keep alive the beauty that charmed you, "'keep it alive and glowing until you return, my own handsome lover-boy.' "'Doesn't that make you feel like you just picked up a dead fish?' Melissa asked. "'Sort of,' Don agreed. "'I thought it was just an advertising gag,' Melissa said. "'I had no idea anyone in the world would have a strong enough stomach "'to aim drool like that at an actual person and do it in public. "'Is this really a picture of Heloise of Hollywood, too?' "'Oh, yes,' said Don. A second portrait, three times the size of Eric Trent's, filled up the lower right hand of the ad. This was a woman. It was taken in profile, and she had her head tilted back to show the long, smooth line of her throat. She had blonde hair and a cold, smooth, ice-frosted beauty. She looked as artificial, but just as well-designed as a wax orchid. There was a message beside her picture, too, but this one was in printing, not in handwriting. Heloise of Hollywood, fifty-four years young, at the supreme pinnacle of gracious, mature beauty, poised, assured, alluring, waits with calm confidence for the return of her own young hero husband. 
Heloise of Hollywood has the glamour that is the rightful and easily obtained heritage of the woman over 40. Heloise of Hollywood beauty prescriptions, compounded exclusively for the mature woman, are on sale at all the really discriminating shops from coast to coast. Melissa tilted her head judicially. Fifty-four? And she looks like this? Well, pretty near, Don said. And she hired you to watch her husband? Yes, Don agreed. I still want to know why. It doesn't sound reasonable. It isn't the sort of thing a normal person would do. Don shrugged. I'm just a hired hand myself. Melissa watched him curiously. Well, what is Trent doing here? That nauseating junk Heloise of Hollywood peddles is piled neck deep in every department store in the country, and it's expensive. She must make millions, and I've got a good idea what Trent's salary is. Did she throw him out? No, said Doan. Ho, said Melissa suddenly. Now I get it. He walked out on her, didn't he? No, said Doan flatly. He did, too. That explains everything. Melissa tapped the magazine. She has run hundreds of these ads in all the big women's magazines in the last couple of years, Every one of them had a picture of, and some sort of sticky message to, handsome lover boy. She must have spent millions of dollars promoting that angle. I wouldn't know, said Doan. Oh, yes, you would. The whole point of that campaign was, and is, that if you're anywhere under 90 years old and use her stuff, you'll make yourself irresistible to men, just like she is. Yes, and you can catch yourself a handsome young husband, just like she did. You're probably wrong, said Doan. I am not, and now he's walked out on her in spite of all her mature allure. Ho, ho, and now her pretty, pretty advertising campaign is about to backfire right in her face. No wonder she hired you to keep women away from him. If he falls for some 20-year-old twerp and starts a divorce action in all the headlines, she wouldn't be able to sell that stuff of hers for axle grease. Have you ever heard of something called slander? Don inquired. Huh, said Melissa. That doesn't prevent me from laughing at him and at her, too. And that's just what I'm doing. Ha, 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 ha. I'm just practicing now, waiting for the next time I see that gloomy gigolo upstairs. What's the joke? a voice asked. Its owner was a woman. She had sleek, carefully groomed gray hair cut short, and she wore a tailored blue suit. Her face slanted from above and from below, culminating in a beak of a nose that made her look like an intelligent and slightly sinister eagle in search of a free meal. "'Oh, hello,' said Melissa. "'This is Mr. Doan. "'This is Beulah Porter Cowis, Mr. Doan.' "'Hello,' said Beulah Porter Cowis to Doan. "'What do you do? "'You look too stupid to be a student, "'if you'll pardon me for mentioning it.' "'Quite all right,' said Doan. "'You're being deceived by my detecting expression. "'I put it on to fool desperate criminals. "'I'm actually very clever indeed.' In fact, many people, including me, think I'm the smartest detective in the world. A detective, said Beulah Porter Cowis. Now I've seen. 
What on earth is that? A dog, Doan told her. Is he dead? No, just bored. His name is Carstairs, Melissa volunteered. Gah, said Beulah Porter Cowes. It would be. I hate dogs. That's all right, said Doan. He hates people. Was he what you were laughing at? Beulah Porter Cowes asked Melissa. No, said Melissa. Look, Beulah, see this picture? Handsome lover boy. He's upstairs. What? It's a fact, Melissa told her. Really, he actually exists, and he's really married to this Heloise. He's a meteorologist, or so he claims. Isn't it horrible? Isn't what horrible? Why, she must be almost twice his age. Just twice, Doan said. He's twenty-six. Ugh, said Melissa. Melissa, Beulah Porterkawas said. Did you ever try stopping to think before you started talking? What? It just so happens that I admit to being 49 myself. What's so repulsive about that? Oh, said Melissa. Well, 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 you don't keep a gigolo. That's because I can't afford one. Oh, now, Beulah, said Melissa. You're just saying that. What I meant was that it's sort of ugly to think about old people having... Having, well, having ideas. There are some aged male movie comedians who don't seem to agree with you. Oh, them, said Melissa. They're just sexual neurotics. It's a transfer of the youth longing. Shirley Parker explained it all to me. It's the same sort of urge that makes nasty old men peep into grade school girls' playgrounds. That's Shirley Parker, said Beulah Porter Cowes. She can always give me the creeps in five seconds flat. She makes life sound like an unsupervised pigsty. She and her Freudian theories of motive analysis are enough to turn anyone's stomach. But what I want to know right now is, why is this alleged detective hanging around here? Beulah, said Melissa, that's simply priceless. Remember what I said about slander, Don warned. Pooh! Beulah, this old hag, Heloise, I mean, hired him to keep women away from her pretty husband. I mean, actually, isn't that a scream? Oh, I don't know, said Beulah Porter Cowes, knowing what I know about the morals of the younger generation. And do I know? I think it's a good idea. Oh, Beulah, you're just pretending... Something dropped and made a tinny, battering clatter inside the second chem lab. It's that damned janitor eavesdropping again, Beulah Porter Cowes snapped angrily. Morales, come here. A man eased himself out of the lab and looked at them in an elaborately surprised way. He was short and solid and lackadaisically stoop-shouldered, and he made each move as though it were the last allowed him and he intended to draw the process out as far as possible. He wore a battered black hat and a shirt with strategic holes in it, and overalls that bagged him probably in the rear. He was carrying three galvanized pails in one hand and a floor brush over his shoulder. "'Hello, peoples,' he said in a liquidly lazy way. "'You want something of Maximilian Morales, no?' "'No,' Beulah Porter Cowes agreed.' Go away somewhere. Wait a minute, 
Melissa intervened. Morales, can't you do something about the smell in number five? Aye, said Morales. No. Yes, you can. You can calcimine those partitions or something. At least that'll give the place a new kind of odor. Calcimine, said Morales. Aye, I have eight children, senorita. What has that got to do with it? Senorita, it is very hard to have eight children. It makes a man tired. I, Maximilian Morales, am tired. We'll stop having children then. Senorita, you are unreasonable. Eight children are enough. No, said Morales. You will pardon me, senorita, but eight children are not enough. Why not? Because none of them are any good. That is why it is necessary for me to arrange to have a ninth. Perhaps it will be smart enough to provide a comfortable old age for its honored father and jobs for its stupid brothers and sisters. One can only hope and keep trying. For how long? Beulah Porter Cowboys inquired. Morales shrugged wearily. That, of course, becomes a question one often considers at our age. Just be careful now, Morales, Beulah Porter Cowis warned. I am always careful, senorita. It becomes an established mannerism in one of my breeding. You have no doubt heard of my great-great-great-grandmother. Too many times. Morales nodded politely at Don. My great-great-great-grandmother was regarded with a certain amount of favor by the great Maximilian Emperor of all Mexico. Congratulations, Don said. Thank you, senor. Is that your dog lying on the floor, which is my care and responsibility? Yep. Has the dog been trained, senor, to avoid uh, accidents of an intimate nature? He's very well educated, Don said. You relieve my mind, senor. It is easy to see that with a dog of such great stature, an accident might be overwhelming. He never slips. He is to be congratulated. Now, if you will excuse me, I will resume my duties. Here, said Melissa, wait a minute. Aren't you going to do anything about fixing up number five? Naturally not, said Morales, disappearing into the lab. Why all this sudden concern about number five? Beulah Porter Cowis asked. Handsome lover boy has appropriated my office. Well, didn't you remonstrate with him? Certainly, he just sat and sneered. Did you kick to slay my Nick? Melissa shrugged. Yes, but you know how he is. Handsome lover boy evidently sneered at him too, and that threw him into an outside loop. Is Slay Minick the puffy guy who pip-pips at people? Don't asked. What goes with him, anyway? He acts like someone had just given him a hot foot. He's troubled with international spies, Beulah Porter Cowis said. Beulah, said Melissa. It's not really right to make fun of him. He's a refugee, Mr. Doan. He's a very brilliant research biochemist. He was a professor at some university near Budapest with a name I can't pronounce. I don't know just what he did, if anything, but when Hungary threw in with Hitler, Slay Meinick was arrested and put into a concentration camp. 
They must have treated him terribly there. Apparently it wrecked his nervous system. Did he escape from the place? Don't asked. No, they decided after they had half killed him that he was harmless and let him go. After that, though, he did sneak out of Hungary and get to Mexico some way or other. Then he nearly starved down there waiting for a passport permit to get into the United States. Once he got here, he ate so much he got bloated. He's had a rough time of it, and he's so jumpy and jittery yet that he can't even give lectures. He hates to meet strangers, and if anyone starts staring at him, he tries to crawl inside his clothes. It's a shame, because I think he must have been a nice man before all this happened to him. He was, anyway, a damned good biochemist, Beulah Porter Cowis added. What do you teach? Don asked. Elementary physics, very dull stuff. A man came running up the front steps of the building and bounced through the front door. He sensed that there was someone in front of him, and he stopped so quickly he skidded, peering at them in a myopically eager way. He was all hands and feet and freckles, and his red hair was slicked down painfully flat, except for three clumps at the back that stuck out like an untrimmed hedge. He spotted Melissa and gave another bounce and an embarrassed gulp. Oh, hello, 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 Melissa. I was just going to drop into your office and and say hello. You'd better say it here, Melissa advised. My office has been liberated. Really? Yes, the enemy is in possession. What enemy? A party known as Handsome Lover Boy, alias Eric Trent. Trent, said the newcomer. Oh, yes, he's the new meteorology man. I met him at the faculty lunch yesterday. He's very nice. He is not. Isn't he? the man asked anxiously. No, he's a boor and and a cad. Really? said the man. Was he rude to you, Melissa? Shall I go up and hit him in the face? Never mind. Melissa said. Mr. Dome, this is Frank Ames. He's an assistant professor of English. Mr. Dome is handsome lover boy's bodyguard, Frank. How odd, Ames said absently. Melissa, you haven't forgotten, have you? Tonight, I mean, our date? No, Frank, just see that you don't forget. I certainly wouldn't forget anything that concerned you or, oh, your letter. He commenced to fumble through his pockets. It was in your slot over at administration. I put it somewhere I wouldn't lose. Here! Melissa took the letter and opened it. Well, well, a personal missive from the president's office, if you please, and stamped by T. Ballard Bestwick in person, or a rubber stamp. Oh, oh! What? asked Beulah Porter Cowis. Cluck, 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 Melissa said in frustrated incoherence. Cluck! It says I have to exchange apartments in Pericles Pavilion with that, 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 with handsome lover boy, because the one I'm in is a double, and his is a single, and he needs more room. Just after I've gotten mine decorated to suit me, I won't do it. I will not do it. Oh, yes, you will, said Beulah Porter Cowis. Why? Melissa demanded defiantly. Because T. Ballard Bestwick told you to, and T. Ballard Bestwick sits at God's right hand.
Oh, damn, said Melissa. Oh, double damn, damn, damn. The moon was riding high, red and fat and swollen with its own importance, when Frank Ames' dusty little coupe puttered up the hill and pulled into the curb opposite the Pericles Pavilion. Frank Ames turned off the coupe's motor. He swallowed and took three long, deep breaths, and then turned and stared at Melissa in a portentously concentrated manner. Melissa sighed and wiggled a little on the slippery seat. She knew what was coming. It always did. Melissa, said Frank Ames, I have a very serious matter which I wish to present to you for your consideration. I wish to ask you, to entreat you. Thank you for the dinner and the movie, Melissa said. No, said Frank Ames. I mean, it was a pleasure, but that isn't what I wanted to... I had a very nice time. Melissa told him. What? Oh, that's nice, but Melissa, I feel that you and I are ideally constituted to embark upon... Melissa opened the door on her side. Don't bother to come in with me, Frank. It's late, and I know you're as tired as I am. The first day of the quarter is always a bore, isn't it? What? Yes, yeah, yes, indeed. But, Melissa, I haven't had a chance to tell you how I feel about... Good night, Frank, said Melissa. I've really got to run. But, but, but... See you tomorrow, said Melissa. Oh, said Frank Ames glumly. Drat! Melissa ran across the street. The Pericles Pavilion, in spite of its classically resounding title, was nothing but a small apartment house, a little ragged and run-down at the heels. There was no point in keeping it up to snuff because it had no competition, and besides, no one but a few instructors and assistants lived there. It belonged to the university, and hence it came under the autocratic direction of T. Ballard Bestwick, who subscribed to the theory that the payment of the most rent possible entitled the payer to the least comfort possible, because it was obvious to him that no one but an idiot would pay rent in the first place. Melissa pushed through the squeaky double door and went on through the narrow L-shaped lobby and up the scuffed stairs to the second floor. She hadn't moved out of her apartment as yet. She knew very well that there was no matter of whether she would move, just a matter of when. But nevertheless, she was determined to fight as stubborn a delaying action as possible. She was directly in front of the apartment, fumbling for the key in her purse, when she noticed that the door was not quite closed. Melissa drew in her breath slowly. She thought of a great many lurid words and applied them all to a personality known as Handsome Lover Boy. Very quietly, she pushed the door open wider. The light in her living room was not on, and the furniture looked distorted and unfamiliar. The door of her bedroom was open, and there was a light in there, dim and bluish and indistinct. Melissa knew that this light came from the reading lamp clamped on the head of her bed, and she began to seethe inside at the mere thought. She tiptoed across the living room and stopped in the bedroom doorway. The light did come from her reading lamp, 
and it reflected from the brightly patterned spread on her bed and from the brightly painted face of the little Spanish clock on her night table. Melissa saw, without noticing, that the gilt hands of the clock were lined up at midnight exactly. There was a man standing in front of her dresser with his back to her. Melissa opened her mouth, but she didn't speak. There was something queer about this man. Melissa swallowed against the sudden tightness in her throat. The man's head was black, all black, and it was distorted in back into an ugly knotted lump. His hands were black, too, a different kind of black, smooth and shiny and ridged. He was staring down at a pair of Melissa's nylon stockings that dribbled limply between his black, clumsy fingers. The Spanish clock whirred very softly to itself and then tinkled out its dusty, sweet little Andalusian peasant tune. The black man made a startled sound deep in his throat. He whirled half around and one of his shiny hands reached out for the clock. No! Melissa cried involuntarily. The black man kept right on turning until he faced her. Melissa knew now what made the blackness of his head. He was wearing a stocking mask pulled tight and knotted at the back of his neck. There were eye holes in it, and he was watching her through them. He was wearing black leather gloves on his hands. He made no sound at all. Melissa backed up a step, and then he moved, coming at her with a deadly, animal-like swiftness. Melissa screamed once.